Uh, we're just excited to have you guys this morning. We're going to be in uh, the book of Song of Songs or Song of Solomon. So if you have your Bibles flip there, we're going to be in chapter 1, verse 1 this morning. I still use my table of contents, so you're not sure where it is. That's great. You can look there. It's after Psalms, after Proverbs, and after Ecclesiastes. So if you're flipping through your Old Testament, keep moving past those books and you'll finally find Song of Solomon or Song of Songs. Uh, as you guys are turning there, let me kind of set it up for you a little bit this morning uh, by telling you there's a story of a man named Peter Davies who in 1986 uh, graduated from the University of Northwestern. Uh, upon graduating, he wanted to kind of have a kind of post-college adventure, so he took off for Kenya and did one of those safari kind of experiences. And so he's off on the safari, and he ends up hiking through a bush area at one point, and he comes on young, across a young bull elephant who is on its side and seems injured. And as he approaches it, he gets closer and closer as he realizes that there's something really wrong with the elephant. And as he gets closer, he ends up getting down on his knee and notices that there's a piece of wood deeply embedded in the elephant's paw. So he grabs out his knife and his tweezers and begins to kind of work, gently work this piece of wood out of the elephant's paw. And he finally gets it out of the way. The elephant ends up standing up and there's this moment between Peter and the elephant in which they're locked eye to eye. And Peter has no idea what's about to happen next. The elephant simply and graciously and kindly raises its paw in the air, puts it down. Raises its paw in the air, puts it down. I don't know if elephants have paws or feet, but I'm just going with paw, all right? Uh, raises it up, puts it down, and then all of a sudden the elephant just trumpets loudly. And then all of a sudden the elephant just runs off and takes off. Peter would always remember this moment. About 20 years later, Peter would end up at the Chicago Zoo with his teenage son at the time, Cameron. And as they're going through the zoo, they end up going through the tigers and the elephants and whatnot. And they end up coming across the elephant enclosure. And Peter ends up coming to the edge of the enclosure and he looks in at this group of elephants. All of a sudden, one of the elephants from that group ends up looking back at Peter and begins to separate himself from the group and begins to walk straight over toward Peter and his son. Peter, having not thought back to that Kenya safari for 20 years now, all of a sudden has a flashback and he's fully convinced, absolutely convinced that this is the same elephant. To add to his convincing uh, persuasion, the elephant raises its foot, puts it down, raises its foot, puts it down and trumpets loudly. All of a sudden, courage strikes Peter and he ends up climbing the rails of the elephant enclosure and goes down into the elephant enclosure. The elephant walks right up to him and begins to wrap its trunk around Peter's leg. And Peter is imagining that the elephant is about to lift him up triumphantly in gratitude now that he's older. Instead, the elephant begins to slam him repeatedly against the wall and kills him instantly. Not exactly what you were expecting, was it? This is a story I got on an email for it. I'm beginning to read through the email and you're kind of waiting for that really heart-wrenching, inspiring, warm, fuzzy kind of feeling. And then you get that, right? So why do I tell that story? First, let me say it's really not a real story at all. It's really just completely made up, okay? There's no Peter Davies. There's no elephant. There's no Kenya Safari. He doesn't die. I don't think he even has a teenage son, Cameron, all right? So why do I tell you guys that story? Why in the world does we open up on a series of song of songs about attraction and dating and marriage and sex and commitment? Why start there? Is dating a lot like getting into an elephant enclosure and dying a horrible death? Yes, yes. <laughs> Let's just get that out of the way right now. <laughs> Hopefully not. Hopefully it's not that bad, okay? But I, I'll tell you guys, through the years working with students, I find there's typically two kinds of students as we jump into this discussion about dating. One is the group of students, and this may be you, who loves the topic of dating, who loves to think about dating, who loves the spectacle of dating, and you come to the elephant enclosure, so to speak, of dating, and you like to look in from the outside. You like your distance, you're interested to it, but you really don't want to get too involved with it. You're a lot like a fantasy football fan who's really enamored with the whole thing, but you've not played a game for your whole life, all right? That may be you. 
Uh, others of you may be more of that kind of persuasion that, you know what, I, it reminds me of a song in college that my roommates and I listen, used to listen to by a guy named Keb Moe. And he had a phrase in one of his songs, and it was kind of that which symbolized for some of us how we felt about dating, which was victim of comfort, all right? Being on the outside of dating and looking in is a safe place to be. There's no risk of rejection. There's no real ability to get hurt. And so it's nice to sometimes be on the outside looking in. Interested, fanatically interested, but sometimes you just prefer to stay on the outside. And whether that for you is an issue of faith, that that's where God has led you, or maybe that's an issue of fear and you're scared, and yet you can dress it up with spiritual sounding words like prayer and sovereignty of God and I'm dating Jesus. Okay, all kinds of things, okay? But there are others of you who have climbed the rail, who have gotten down into the enclosure with dating and you, like Peter Davies, misjudged the scene badly. Okay? I had a good college roommate of mine who asked out a girl one time and he was dead right convinced that she liked him. And so he was absolutely shocked that when he asked her out, her response was hands on head and asking, are you kidding me? <laughs> Don't really recover from that sometimes, all right? He would marry late in life, okay? Uh, because of that moment. Just kidding, okay? Uh, but all of us have been in that place where we maybe just misjudged badly. Maybe it's not so comedic. Maybe you were in a relationship and you used the L word because you thought this was it. This was the one. And then a month later, all of a sudden, you're not even talking to one another. And this is clearly not the one. That we've been in that experience and we just misjudged, we saw it wrongly, that it isn't what God had. Or maybe even more seriously for some of us, we've been in relationships and we've gone places physically, we've experienced things that in the moment seemed halfway okay, but in the aftermath we realize this isn't what God had. And we encounter and experience all kinds of pain, all kinds of regret, and all kinds of guilt. We jumped in and this wasn't at all what God intended for us and we have all kinds of pain in the aftermath of that. For some of you, it's not the relationships that you've been in, but it's a relationship that you observed. For some of you, you saw your parents' marriage absolutely fail. And so as you look at dating and as you look at marriage, you're just not too sure of the whole process whatsoever. Because your greatest fear is you don't want what you saw in your parents' life duplicated in your own, and so you just kind of drift back utterly fearful of what it could be. Really, we come all kinds of different angles on this dating discussion in this series this morning. I think for many of us, we come with interest in it for sure. But a lot of us also come with pain, we come with fear, we come with anxiety. So where do we start out in this whole thing? That's where we're going to jump this morning in Song of Songs, chapter 1, verse 1. We're going to look at seven simple words this morning that really, I think, provide us a way and a, and a direction and a path as we come to this topic that we're all interested in, but we all have fears, we all have pains. How do we maneuver through this? If you will, read with me Song of Solomon, chapter 1, verse 1. Seven simple words for our morning. This is all we're going to look at. The Song of Songs, which is Solomon's. You can close your Bible, we're done. <laughs> Just kidding. Song of Songs, which is Solomon's. As we kind of key off the series this morning, kind of have an introduction to the book, really there's two basic ideas I want to give you this morning. Two basic ideas. The first is going to be this, that really as we think about this topic, uh, the first idea I want to give you guys this morning is this, that really your love life does not define you. No matter where you're coming from, no matter your level of interest in this topic, no matter your relational status, whether it's Facebook official or not, your love life doesn't define you. It doesn't define you at all. How do we get to this idea? First of all, let me ask you guys a few questions as we kind of jump into this book and try to unpack it. The first is this, what is Solomon's relationship to the book? I want to give you guys a few background pieces, then I want to come back to this big statement I just gave you about the fact that your love life doesn't define you. How do I get there? First of all, what is Solomon's relationship to this book? I'll tell you, commentaries are all over the place. 
Some will say that Solomon has written the book. Others will say that someone else, a woman, wrote the book about Solomon. Hello, all right? All kinds of things, all right? People are all over the place. The great highly probability is that Solomon was either the writer or it was written about him. He's either the subject of it. In some sense, it's the greatest probability that he is the character, the male character in the book. Are we absolutely positively sure? No. Greatest probability is that he's probably the one who's written the book. Second thing, what is the purpose of the book? Why was this book written? And people are all over the map as to why this book was written. There's a couple different extremes that we often get about this book. The first extreme that we often get as people talk about this book is that some will say that this is a book about divine love only. That this is a book only about God's relationship and God's love for humanity. And that's it. Why do people say that? Frankly, it was a very popular interpretation way back in the early church in a period, culturally speaking, when sexuality was a very taboo topic. We don't talk about sex. In fact, if sex is in our Bible, whoa, whoa, that really is going to blow some circuits for the early church. And so they didn't really know what to do with the Song of Solomon. They had no idea what to do with this book. They thought the body, frankly, was evil. That The body and anything of the flesh of the physical body was evil. So anything physical, they were really uncomfortable with. In fact, in that day and time, they thought sex was only for procreation reasons. That if you didn't want to have a baby, you should not be having sex. That was the common concept during that day and time. That this is only about divine love. Only about God's picture and his love for his people. In fact, one commentator would talk about a part of the book, and we'll get here a little bit later on. It's going to get hot and crazy, okay? One commentator would talk about one part in the book where a man is talking about a woman's breast. Hello, we're in church, all right? And they would describe and they would interpret that moment as really that it's a picture of divine love. And really what's happening there in that moment in time is that the writer is talking about the Old Testament and the New Testament, which are to be the delight of the church. (laughs) I don't think so. I don't think that's what's going on. That's a little bit of a stretch in my mind. Reminds me of uh, Marcy's grandma or any grandma, you kind of get in this topic and it gets really uncomfortable really fast. She often will say that Victoria's secrets don't really leave anything secret, right? That's kind of her viewpoint on what's going on. This book is going to be a little bit like that too. Uh, There's not going to be a lot of secrets. There's going to be stuff mentioned and stuff put in here that you're going to be like, oh my goodness, this is in the Bible. That to say this is only about divine love seems like a little bit of a stretch to get there. So someone have said that. Someone have gone to the other extreme to say this is only about human love. That this is only about human love. That also, I think, seems like a little bit of a stretch. As you walk through the book, it's clear that there's a man and a woman that's that's involved here. There's even a clear progression in their relationship. Some have described this as the erotic solster. Hello. This is going to be interesting as we walk through this book, all right? You're going to see a, a couple, a man and a woman who are going to proceed and progress through a relationship. Even to give you guys a little sense of where we're going to go this semester, really, here's a kind of an outline of the book. This morning, we kick off with a song of introduction, looking at the first verse, but then we're going to see this couple have their first inklings, the first burning embers of attraction to one another. That attraction will lead to a pursuit of a relationship that will finally land in a relationship that will move toward marriage, which will then involve sex. And even after marriage and sex, we're going to see this couple fight in the confines and even in marriage. We're going to see them deal with conflict. We're going to see them resolve that conflict, and we're going to see them renew their commitment to one another. We're going to see the entirety of the stage of a human love relationship. That's what we're going to see. But to argue that this is only divine love seems a little bit of a stretch when you really get into the particulars of the book. And really the particulars of the book will say that human sexuality is something to be celebrated, that it is a gift of God, that it is good. Not something to feel ashamed about, not something to feel awkward about, but something to be celebrated and talked about. And I can guarantee you our culture is talking about it. So it seems appropriate that the church should talk about it as well. 
So that's why we're going to take eight weeks to look at this topic, really this couple's progression in their relationship, because I think it's not just about divine love, and it's frankly not just about human love. That I think for many of us, as we go to the other extreme, that we think this is just about a human relationship, we really miss the point. I think for many of us, as we walk through college, really one of our biggest goals in college is to get a degree, Lord willing. (laughs) But sometimes even above that, it's to get a spouse. That to graduate from A&M or a blend and to not have a spouse line up at our hip seems like the greatest fear that is in our lives. That for some of us, we're all great about looking at human relationships because for some of us, human love and human relationships is the highest goal in our life if we're absolutely honest with one another. Really, the thing that we're pursuing, the thing that we want most is human approval and human affection. That we're looking for someone who would just love us. And all of a sudden, what we've begun to do with human relationships is we've begun to make them an end in and of themselves. And we've made them the highest goal. And we've really missed what God had for us. So human relationships, human love, human affection is not the highest goal of our life. There's something even true beyond that. There's an even higher purpose for that. And it doesn't just stop at human love. In fact, I think it's fascinating, really, as we look at this topic, uh, that in many ways, I think when you and I begin to believe that really the highest goal in our life is love, we begin to really miss things. See, when dating is life's main goal, there's a series of things that we begin to flip upside down. That when we begin to think that our highest goal in life, our greatest pursuit in life is dating or finding someone of the opposite sex for a marital relationship at some point in time, Lord willingly, when that's our highest goal, there's a series of things that we just flip upside down quickly. The first is this, and this is when you know this is happening. Some of us begin to think that singleness is life's worst curse. <laughs> uh, like It's like you're in a game and you're the last one standing and everyone else has a spouse and you don't. It's like God has just had his wrath poured out on you, right? It's probably a little bit of a stretch as to what God is doing. But for some of us, singleness feels like life's worst curse. Like, Lord, I'll take any other kind of suffering. Just not that one, please, okay? Just not that one. For some of us, that's really what we think is life's worst curse. So here's another one, that when dating is life's main goal, for many of us, we begin to think that uh, our happiness trumps our holiness. That really what we're looking for, what is the most important thing for us, that when dating becomes life's main goal, then what we're really wanting is happiness, not holiness. One of my favorite uh, quotes ever about marriage is that someone said, a guy named, uh, who wrote a book called Sacred Marriage said that marriage is not designed for your happiness, but for your holiness. And that if marriage is designed primarily for your holiness and not your happiness, then the on-ramp to marriage known as dating likely might be designed not for your happiness, but also for your holiness. And all of a sudden, when we begin to think that dating is life's main goal, we begin to flip things upside down, and our holiness, our being made in the image of Christ, becomes secondary to our circumstantial happiness. See, when you begin to find those things going on in your life and in your heart, you know you've made dating way too high of a goal for you. Here's the last one. That often when dating is life's main goal, our worth becomes defined incorrectly. That our worth becomes attached to whether we have someone on our arm, whether we're in a relationship, then we're worthwhile. That when someone has said, I really want to be with you, and they've affirmed our worth, that's when we feel like we're worthwhile and nothing could be farther from the truth. Your worth is not defined by your relational status, which is why your love life doesn't define you. It doesn't. One of my favorite quotes about this book, a commentator said, um, The Song of Songs is about human love at its best. But behind it, above it, and through it, the Song of Songs praises the Lord of creation who makes possible such exquisite human love and the Lord of redemption who demonstrated divine love's fullness on a cross. 
That really, as we look at this book, we're going to see a couple, a man and a woman who are going to come together. You're going to experience human affection and human love in the context of marriage. But it's not just about human love. Because that's not the highest goal God had for their life, and it's not the highest goal that God has for your life. Your love life doesn't define you. Frankly, it didn't define Solomon. Uh, honestly, as you look at the life of Solomon, Solomon's most noted not for his ways with the ladies, not for his love life, but he's no- noted most for his wisdom. Solomon, this is not just the only book Solomon wrote. Solomon wrote Proverbs, a lot of Proverbs, and he also had a hand in writing a lot of Ecclesiastes. And so it's interesting, even in the Jewish Bible, what order do they put the books in? Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. That even for Solomon, this book, this area of his life did not define him. It was not his mark of significance. And yet, this is often what we think is our mark of significance. It wasn't for Solomon, and it's not for you either. There was something that marked him even more significantly than love. It's fascinating as you think about this book, that it's not just the only book that he wrote. He wrote multiple books. But as the, the, uh, chapter 1, verse 1 opens, it also says that this is the Song of Songs. Uh, the book of Kings tells us that Solomon actually wrote over a thousand love songs. Over a thousand love songs. So this is one of the thousand that he wrote. Why is that significant? Why is it significant? This is the song of songs. That This is the best song that he ever wrote. Why is that significant to you and I? Here's why. Because as you read this book and as we walk through this book, as we see him and this woman move in the context of a relationship from one stage to the next, we're seeing Solomon's best. This song of songs, this one song out of a thousand that he wrote, this is the only one that we get recorded, put in our New Testament or in our Old Testament. This is his best. This is Solomon at his best. Here's what I would love to have seen. Here's what we don't get though. I would love to have seen Solomon's song about his awkward first kiss. <laughs> that would have been fun, right? I would have loved to have seen his first song about his first heartbreak where he's just ripped in two and he has nothing he can think about life being good anymore. Let me see that song, right? I'd love to see the song that he wrote when he went too far physically and he had failure in that arena and he wrote a song of regret. That's not the song we get here. I guarantee you that song has been written, right? I'd like to see the song written about the first time that his girlfriend cheated on him. That would be interesting. That's raw. That's real life, right? Really, as you look at Solomon's life, this is one song of a thousand. And this is him at his best. And it comes after past failures that he has. And it comes before horrific future failures that he has, okay? This isn't a song written about the fact that later on he's going to have hundreds of wives and concubines at the end of his life. That's not the song we're getting. We're getting Solomon's song, the song of songs, the best that he's got, and when he shows that he gets it right. But before that and after that, he doesn't get it right. And we don't get those songs. And so where I want to end with you guys this morning as we think about this is not only that your love life doesn't define you, but your past doesn't determine your future. That for every single one of us, as we kick off a series like this, as we jump into this topic, every single one of us has failures. Every single one of us has had heartbreaks. Every single one of us has fallen at some, in some way, even morally with the opposite sex, whether it was in a relationship or whether it was online. Every single one of us comes to this topic with skeletons in our closet and some broker, broken and checkered history of our past. That's not the song we get of Solomon. I guarantee you it's in Solomon's life though. So as we walk through this book, as you see Solomon at his best, do not be discouraged that you can't identify with Solomon. I guarantee you, you can. And you can clearly identify him with his failures in the future when he ends his life in rampant idolatry and rampant sexual immorality. 
I think for a lot of us, though, we come into this topic or we come into this issue and we have all kinds of fear, all kinds of pain, and all kinds of guilt as we see as we look back on our past. Every single one of us does. And for some of us, we think, man, God's grace can't forgive that. Or that the consequence of that is that I can never have an ideal, godly-driven, God-honoring relationship in the future. And nothing could be farther from the truth. One of the things I want to do as we begin this morning and even as we end this morning is I want you guys to see that your past doesn't determine your future and that God delights in new beginnings. That what God is in the business of doing, what God delights in is restoring, remaking, and rewriting. One of my favorite passages along these lines is in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and Paul writes this. He says that neither fornicators nor adulterers will inherit the kingdom of God. And I have a series of periods there because in between fornicators and adulterers and after adulterers, he lists about 15 different sins. And I'm going to stop there to highlight two different things for you. First is this, that sexual sin is not the only sin that gets us. That sexual sin is not the only marker of our spirituality. Every single one of us has fallen. And the result of that is that we are going to be separated from God. But here is the beauty of the gospel. Here is the beauty of what Jesus Christ has done for us. When Paul says that such were were some of you, but you're no longer. Why? Because you were washed and you were sanctified and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. That the beauty of the gospel, the beauty of divine love, that human love is just a picture and a trajectory of, is that God loved us so greatly that he would give his only son for us because every one of us has a past that's broken and checkered and our future needs, to be, needs a massive redo. Every single one of us. And the beauty of the gospel is that Jesus would give his only, his only life so that our sins would become his and that his life could become ours. And then in the place of death, we would get life. In the place of guilt, we would get forgiveness. In the place of a future that is locked in and settled, he would bring about a new beginning. And what we're going to do as we end this morning, as we, as we begin this series, is here, where we're going to end it this morning is really this idea that new beginnings are celebrated in communion. That we're going to do something we've never really done here in college before this morning is we're going to actually have an opportunity to participate in communion. And so for you table hosts who are at your tables, I'd love for you guys to pull the, in some cases, the black and white polka dotted cloth, all right, off of the bread and the elements. And what we're going to do this morning is just give us, uh, uh, us as a community an opportunity to celebrate communion. Why? Communion is a picture and it's a wonderful reminder of exactly what Christ has done for us. That divine love was such that he would give his only son and his only son would suffer uh, his body being broken and his blood being shed so that our sins could be forgiven. What I want to do is I want to read for you guys 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And you guys are welcome table hosts. If you guys want to pass that bread around the table and you guys all grab a piece of it as you like. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul will talk about this picture of communion. He'll talk about exactly what communion is and what it was to signify for those that have trusted in Jesus Christ and his death and burial and resurrection. Here's what he says that communion is as he describes it in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 22. He says this, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, The cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. The beauty of communion is that you get a wonderful picture of exactly what Christ thinks of your past. 
that he takes his, your sin upon himself and he says, I love you so greatly that I will die in the place of your sin so that that past doesn't have to determine your future. And what we want to do this morning is we kick off a series about relationships when we have all have pasts in which we have failures in which we've fallen short of what he intended. So we want to begin this series, begin this morning, allowing you to come before the Lord and just simply come before him in solitude and wrestling with, hey, Lord, where have I fallen short? And that you could identify that, that you could say, Lord, here's where I've fallen short. Here is where I so desperately need a savior and I so desperately need a new beginning. Michael's going to play for a few minutes and what I want you guys to do is simply just to come before him and have a time just to reflect and to say, Lord, where am I in this whole dating thing? Is it pain? Is it fear? Is it anxiety? And why? What is it you want me to see? And whenever you feel right, whenever you feel led, if you've trusted in Jesus Christ for his death and burial, resurrection, simply take that bread and dip it in the juice and then take it. as a sign, as a remembrance of what he's done on our behalf. That his death becomes our death and that his life becomes our life and his past, our past becomes his forever in which he forgets our sins and doesn't remember it anymore. And yet he grants us a new beginning. He grants us a new life and a new possibility if we'll walk with him and if we'll know him.